Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, we're talking downsizing and how it affects family history and heirlooms, and also the earthquake of 1906 in San Francisco. What records are surviving from that? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to a pair of experts on both these topics. And with Ask Us Anything, we'll talk about the best ways to preserve a large pile of photographs. You'll want to hear it all. Coming up this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, Brian Brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to another spine-tingling edition of Extreme Genes, America's family history show on ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race. Another episode coming up Sunday night at 8 Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific time. Boy, we've got a loaded show for you today. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to start off with Amy Johnson Crow, the great blogger and genealogist. She's going to be talking about downsizing and how she's doing that with her parents and how that all ties into family history. And it is amazing how much it does, especially when you get into the psychological side of things and also the value side of things. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. Later on on the show, Melanie McComb will be back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society, talking about survivors and surviving records of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And my grandfather was in that one, so we'll have a little to talk about there. With Ask Us Anything later today, Nancy Desmond will be here from Memory Web, answering listener questions about photographs and preservation. And speaking of Ask Us Anything, thanks to Kitty from Anacortes, Washington. She sent a little email saying, now I understand why I find different military info when I search Ancestry.com versus my private Fold3 account. She said, I had no inkling that there was more than one index to Civil War pensions. T289 is fascinating. I spent hours yesterday wandering through that resource. This is the sort of thing that keeps me humble and listening to your show. I'm still learning after 50 years of researching. Thanks, Kitty and Anna Cortes, Washington. Kitty, thanks so much for the note. We appreciate it and glad we can be of some use to you. Hey, don't forget, if you have not yet signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter, we would love to have you as part of that. I give you a blog each week, links to uh, past and present shows, and links to stories that you will find interesting as a genealogist. Well, David remains on the road this week after Roots Tech London, but he will be back next week, and we will find out all the things that happened there. I'm hearing nothing but good stuff about it, by the way. So pat on the back and a tummy rub for family search. Apparently it went great, and there are some great speakers and a lot of new connections made, and hopefully it will be one of those events that goes on for many, many, many years to come. Well, in Family Histoire News, there's a great article in the Smithsonian, and you can find the link to it at ExtremeGenes.com. It's about a man named Andrew Carroll. And this guy has been on a mission now for decades, and he carries around this portfolio wherever he goes to give talks, and he calls this thing the football. 
and he actually handcuffs this to him wherever he goes because it contains more than two dozen original letters, and they're faded, and they're bullet-torn, and they're tear-stained, blood-stained in some cases, and they go all the way back to the Revolution, all the way forward to 9-11, and each page is in a, a plastic sleeve for protection. And what he's been doing is going around collecting letters written home from the war and all kinds of insight from all these different wars. So what began as a small collection within his own family because of a fire at a relative's house, he's now up to 150,000 letters written from the war. And each one of these things is digitized and read looking for interesting information. For instance, they came across one letter about a Red Cross lieutenant named Hemingway. Yeah, Ernest Hemingway in World War I. And the letter talked about that he'd been in the hospital for four months and that he'd received 247 wounds from uh, mortar shells and machine guns and how lucky he was that not one of them hit him in a vital spot. So historians and family historians are going to have an amazing asset with this as it continues to develop. He's up to 150,000 letters now in his collection, covering virtually all the wars. And he says, you know, that's nothing. There are millions out there. And his goal is to collect a million letters. In fact, he's calling it the Million Letter Project. And you can find out all about it through the link to the Smithsonian article at ExtremeGenes.com. Well, Halloween may be behind us, but that doesn't mean we should stop thinking about traveling to our ancestors' haunted castles. <laughs> yeah, in Condé Nast website, cntraveler.com, they list the top 10 most haunted castles in the world. And the number one castle is Leap Castle in Ireland. And you read about this all over the place. It was built between the 13th and late 15th century. And they say it's seen more gruesome deaths than a Game of Thrones wedding. They have a part of this castle called the Bloody Chapel, and word is that there may be a priest that is haunting the church in the evenings. Back in the early 1900s, there was some renovation going on at this castle, and workmen found a secret dungeon there with a whole bunch of human skeletons. And this is a very creepy dungeon, by the way. It was put together in a way so that prisoners would actually slip through a trap door, and wooden spikes would puncture their lungs, and they would die a slow horrific death and members of the O'Carroll clan who also enjoyed poisoning dinner guests could hear the whole thing yeah it was all within earshot I mean it's a fascinating article and there are nine other castles for you to read about so check it out well, AtlasObscura.com has a fascinating article about old Masonic temples. And, of course, membership in that particular fraternal organization has been uh, dropping off for decades. But many of us have uh, ancestors who belong to these organizations. So they talk about the old temples themselves. Many of them are abandoned. And they say because of the way they're designed, where they rarely have a window to the outside world, especially from the rooms in which their rites were performed, these places go up in smoke far more often than other old abandoned buildings. And this is a great article because it not only talks about the buildings that have been lost, but about how some of them have been repurposed. So some of the buildings your ancestors actually may have participated in Masonic rituals in may still be standing. So you can read all about it at ExtremeGenes.com as we've linked to the article. It's good stuff. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to Amy Johnson Crow. And of course, Amy's been on the show before and she's been going through some changes lately 
with her senior parents moving out of a four-story house, and that means downsizing. And boy, there are a lot of connections to family history involved in that process, and I can tell you that firsthand myself. And Amy is a lecturer and a writer and a genealogist. And Amy, you've been uh, talking lately about downsizing. And this is something that really hits home. And people may wonder, well, what has that got to do with family history and genealogy? It has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? It sure does. On the one hand, downsizing can be very difficult. But on the other hand, it could also be very easy. You know, just get a dumpster and toss everything in it and you're done. But I don't think that that's really the approach that we want to take, especially when you are understanding family history. There's so much that, well, I want to save that, and I want to save this, and I want to save this other thing. So it rapidly snowballs into something that is very big physically and also very big emotionally. Yeah, I I think you're right. I've gone through this in a a couple of different ways. Uh, My mother passed away in 2010. And she had Alzheimer's for several years. And so we had to move her out of her place in Portland, Oregon, and then start moving her stuff around. And wow, what an experience that is, because, you know, there's this sense that somehow there's a betrayal of somebody if you're throwing things away that they valued. Right. Especially Mm -hmm. when they're living. I kind of came up with a list. It's like five things you can do with any one thing. Okay, so the list is you can keep something. You can throw something out. You can give the item away, you can sell the item, or you can donate the item, right? That's about all you can do with anything. That's that's about all you can do with it, yeah. (laughs) I don't know how much it cost us to haul a lot of her stuff from her home in Oregon to our home. And we had these things, and it's like, oh, these are moms. These are the better things because we'd thrown all the other stuff out and the Goodwill stuff. Well, now it's been many years, and it's like, what did we bring this home for? And, And then I came to realize it's really a process to let go of some things. A lot of it you cannot do all at once at first you have to wait right and then it gets a little easier was that your experience yeah it's been my experience just as a little bit of history of where i'm coming into this my parents recently moved from their house of 35 years into an independent living community they went from a four-level split with so many stairs into an apartment that's all on one floor so it's been fabulous for them they're happy Yeah, they are happy. But the problem is they've had this house for 35 years. They've been married for 66. So they have a lot of stuff. Yeah. So my sisters and I were working through the process because, you know, putting the house up for sale, we need to get the house emptied. We need to figure out what mom and dad are going to take with them to their new apartment and things like that. So just this whole process It was exhausting physically, it was exhausting emotionally, but some things that really helped us was, well, one, we started working with a company that specialized in elder moves. It was wonderful. She taught us, and it took a while to accept it, but getting rid of an item is not the same as getting rid of the person. It feels like it sometimes, though, doesn't it? It sure does. It sure does. (laughs) But she said something else that also helps, that it isn't the item per se that's important. It's the story that that item represents. Right. And when you talk about story, that's family history right there. There we go. Bingo. And so you wind up keeping really the best things that you really have a story associated with that somebody might want to have somewhere down the line. 
Exactly. It really forces you to take a look at, okay, what do we really know about X, Y, or Z? What do we really know? What good connection do we have with this item? Because let's be practical. You cannot save everything. No. I had a cousin recently who offered me a chair that belonged to my Mm -hmm. grandfather who died in 1956. She wanted to know if I wanted to have this chair. Very, very, very old chair. No interest in having that, you know, even though I know, yeah. okay, he sat on it, you know, but still. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, George Washington slept here, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, really, the more that you have, the less that you're able to really tell the story of any of it. Yeah. Yeah, I figured that, too, you know, because what, what you're left with, first of all, it's easier to find it because it's not right. part of clutter. Each item kind of stands out a little bit more, and mm-hmm. then you can hopefully find a home for it. Right. And that's something that we really worked with, too. I have two sisters, not only thinking about, you know, the three of us and who's going to take this, but thinking about our kids, thinking about our cousins. You know, we found some things that really had more of a tie to some of our cousins. It's like, hey, you know, do you want this? Do you want this? And thinking beyond just our immediate family. Yes, and I've gone through the same experience because there are a lot of things, a lot of things my kids have no interest in at all. And it's like, well, I just can't throw this out. This is too important a piece of family history. But I will find a cousin who will just go nuts over the idea that they could actually own that piece. And I'm thrilled to give it to them. Right. And one thing that I really started embracing was what can you do to better tell the story of that particular item? So let's say that you have this set of uh, 24 teacups. Okay, that's nice, and they're old, but just because it's been in mom and dad's closet for 50 years, does that mean that we need to keep it? No, not really. On the other hand, there was on mom and dad's dining room table several pieces of pale pink glassware. There was like a little candy dish. There were, you know, just just small little pieces of glassware like that. I always thought, and my sisters always thought, that mom and dad had just picked these up as they were antiquing, because mom and dad have always collected glassware. Now, I never saw them buy anything pink, but it's like, well, it's on the dining room table. They probably just bought this at some antique shop at some point. Well, as we were packing it up, it turns out that that pink glassware belonged to my mom's mother. Oh, And my grandmother died when my mom was just a little girl. So we have very few things that belong to my grandmother. Wow. Mom had never told us until we started packing it up that, yeah, this was my mother's. It's like, oh, really? Hello? (laughs) Yeah, that changes the the perception, doesn't it? That changed everything. Yes, of course. About glassware. So what are we doing with our own possessions in our own houses, you know, even if they're not thinking about downsizing, what are we doing with our own possessions that, yeah, it's special to us, but have we told somebody else why this item is special? Why is the cookie jar on my kitchen counter so special to me? 
Well, and you know, I've gone through this, too, because we're decluttering. And so I've got, yeah. for instance, uh, the, this whole big mantelpiece filled with Little League baseball trophies for when I was coaching my uh-huh. kids growing up. And it's like, what are we supposed to do with these? So I took photos mm-hmm. of them and then I donated them because th- they can yeah. be repurposed. And it was great. So we got the pictures. We'll put them in a book maybe about our history together. Look at all the trophies. But we don't have to have the trophies. Exactly. And and you still have those stories. You still have those memories. And you still have it in a tangible form. You have the photographs. You have, you know, maybe a little blurb that you've written to go along with it. But you don't have to have the item. That's it. That's exactly right. And, you know, this is the thing, too. I think a lot of uh, younger people now, younger adults, are not that interested in stuff. I do believe they will be interested in those <laughs> things when we're gone, more so than ever before, because they're, they're going to feel the same way about connecting with us as we do with our people before us when the time comes. But right now, as they're busy raising their own kids and going mm-hmm. about their own lives and start their own family war chest of heirlooms, I don't think they think that far <laughs> ahead, you know, as, as to what they will value later on. Well, I think that that's true. I think that there is a generational difference. And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials. I just think it's where you are in a certain stage of life. Exactly. But one experience that I think is universal is that people will only save what they care about. That's right. And the best way to get someone to care about something, in, in my experience, has been to tell them the story of it. If it's just that pink glass around the table, okay, well, that's nice. But suddenly learning that this was my grandmother's, and it's one of the very few things of hers that we have, suddenly that becomes a lot more special. I have actually gone through and photographed the most priceless heirlooms in the family and then told the little story of it and created a little book. Because I mm-hmm. figure that the time could come where, you know, we're gone and suddenly it's like, well, what's this? Gone. What's that? Gone. But if they have yeah. this ahead of time, it's almost like a guide to this may be what you're interested in and here's why. And I can't help exactly. but think they will be, you know? Right. And I, I think that that's such a treasure that you have given. And it doesn't take a lot of time to do this. And you don't have to do it all at once. Right. You know, just a, an hour on a Saturday afternoon. Get out the camera. And take a few pictures, and you don't have to write an entire book. Just write a little blurb. Why is this thing special? I have uh, maybe a paragraph on each item, and then I've added to it over time, and over maybe a year and a half. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's always a work in progress, especially if you run into something new. But it makes you also think about these things so that yeah. when you run across something, it's like, oh, I got to add that to the book so that they have that in mm-hmm. there. So there you yeah. go. She's Amy Johnson Crow. She is a, a fabulous blogger. Amy, thanks so much for coming on. I think this is just a really important conversation for many people, whether they're downsizing for themselves or for their loved ones. Well, thank you for having me. And coming up next, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. What records survived? Where can you find them? Melanie McComb from NEHGS has some answers for you. 
Back on April 18th of 1906, the ground began to shake in San Francisco, California, and the history of that area was forever changed. My grandfather was a part of that, as was his first wife and my half-uncle, who was born just the year before. And it's interesting now, because Melanie McComb, my good friend, the genealogist from uh, New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org, just brought up the fact that she has been getting questions about records that were lost in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And Melanie, you're telling me there are lots of records that survived that whole thing. First of all, welcome. Great to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always wonderful to talk to you. And you're right. There are so many records that were lost, but there's also quite a variety of records that did survive. So you can learn more about your ancestors that were living in San Francisco County. So tell me about this at that time. There were fires. There were buildings that went down. I think we got a little taste of what it may have been like when we saw the 1989 earthquake that took place during the World Series. Remember that? And a lot of buildings went down at that time as well. We lost a courthouse, as I recall, right, in 1906. Right. We lost the San Francisco County Courthouse where it completely just got dissolved in the fire, and a lot of the records were completely lost. And what records were in that courthouse? So the main records that were lost were some of the vitals, so the birth, marriage, and death, probate, so if your ancestor had a will or any kind of letters of administration, and naturalization petitions as well. So if you had any immigrants coming into the area, a lot of naturalization petitions were lost. So this is as bad as many of the fires and courthouses and civil war stories we hear about in the past, right? Absolutely. So different organizations had to resort to alternative repositories and different record sets to recreate some of what was already done to help document the citizens of the area. Wow. So how did they do that? So there are a number of things that were being done. So the first is with the vital records is newspapers were actually being used to help recreate some of those records. Since a lot of times a birth, a marriage, or a death notice would usually be included in the newspaper. So even if you didn't have a full-on obituary, maybe they at least mentioned that someone died and there was a little bit of detail on where that person lived. Those would have been included in newspapers like the San Francisco Examiner, which has been indexed by different groups, especially like the San Francisco uh, Genealogical Society and the Public Library. They're, they're trying to put together more of these clippings from the newspapers. What did the people do back at the time, though? I mean, were they told to go out and get a newspaper clipping of, of their birth or their marriage to recreate some of the lost identification papers that they needed? So from what I recall, though, and this is very common with a lot of courthouses that burned, is you're right. There was a time period where they would, you know, put out a notice in the paper and ask people to bring their copies of the records to them so that they could start writing down in their ledgers to help recreate the documents. Ah. And, you know, and, and that was very important, especially for uh, naturalization, because, you know, if you needed to prove your citizenship and if you didn't have your copy and your the original is gone up in smoke and you don't have any other ID indicating you're a citizen, that's going to create a problem for you, you know, when you're trying to vote. So that was really a key one is they want everyone to go in. If you have your papers, please bring them in and let them copy down so that they can prove that you did go through the naturalization process. Wow, that is fascinating. I had no idea that that was going on. So what are some of the records then that survived this disaster? Sure. So a lot of the the records that survived are going to be more on the private side. So, for example, a lot of the funeral homes had a lot of their collections that were intact. Oh, wow. And the 
San Francisco Public Library actually has a large collection from the Halstead, Gray, Carew, and English Mortuary Collection. And this funeral home company actually acquired several ones in the area, so it was kind of a conglomerate. And their manuscript materials are actually at the library, and they've been actually put on microfilm by Family Search. So you can actually search them for free, and you could look at you know all the registers, and they even include where people were buried, um, any of the account books. Sometimes they might even have a death certificate or an obituary included in them. So it, it's it's a complete gold mine when you look at these collections. Wow. So you say Family Search has them. Have they been indexed? Uh, yes, they have been indexed. Wow! I mean, talk about a grand slam. That sounds like an outstanding way to go. What other records survive this whole thing? Sure. So other records that survived also include coroner's records. If the city coroner or county coroner needed to be involved in the case of a death, their records survived, and those can be also consulted to examine a person's death, and the cause of death usually would be noted, and there might be other details, including legal funeral home they sent the body to after they did their examination. Boy, you know, you think about what the officials had to do after something like this. Once, obviously, they got everybody safe again and and reconstruction had gotten underway. But the record reconstruction had to have taken years and obviously was never complete. I mean, when you talk about coroner's records, I mean, there are just not that many deaths that are investigated by the coroner. That only affects really a pretty small number of individuals. But I bet you they got the public involved in that at the time. Oh, yes. The public has definitely been crucial to helping crowdsource that. And there's actually a new collection coming online on FamilySearch, Victims of the Earthquake. Oh, wow. It actually talks about anybody that might have died in the earthquake, you know, who treated them, what they died of, any details they could find on them. So, yes, there was definitely a, a crowded campaign to help make sure we document everybody that unfortunately succumbed to that awful disaster. Yeah. It was something. My grandfather was 19 years old at the time. He was a newlywed with a baby, and they were living in Oakland. And, of course, it shook wow. Oakland pretty hard, too, but they were really needing a lot of help over on the San Francisco side. So he took a ferry across the bay to help put out the fires there. And one of my cousins actually has a, a little rock or something that came from one of the collapsed buildings in San Francisco at the time oh, from wow. my grandfather. But he used to tell the stories about how everything started shaking. And they were very fortunate that they weren't hurt or injured in any way. And he never wound up staying there, wound up in Oregon. But nonetheless, one of those life experiences you would never forget. Yes, absolutely. It was the worst loss of life in California's history. I think they recorded a magnitude of 7.8, I know, when it ruptured along the San Andreas Fault. And then they had the aftershocks for a while as well. So they just created so much chaos. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of people said, hey, not staying here after all this. And they moved on to other locations. So are there any absolutely. other records that we should be aware of? Obviously, yes. you've got to know that there are ancestors who were part of this whole thing. There actually are cemetery records. And and these are freely available. And there's a wonderful website that was put together called sfgenealogy.org. And it has all kinds of alternative resources like we're looking at today. So it has like some of the cemetery records, some of the newspaper indexes. 
so one of the databases they have at the cemeteries is they highlight a lot of the ones for Holy Cross and Calvary. Hmm. Now, a lot of the burials in Calvary were moved to Holy Cross, so you'll find Holy Cross is going to have the bigger collection there, and they're really very detailed registers. So they list the name of the person that was deceased. They even list the parish church. Sometimes they list even information on who they married, cause of death. It's just a wealth to really recreate, you know, when you can't find that death certificate, is going into the registers for some of these major cemeteries. Wow. And when you mentioned that they have the parish listed in there, that means there could be church records awaiting you as well. Absolutely. I was working with one consultee, and we actually were lucky enough that the parish was listed right by their entry. So now she could reach out to the archdiocese, since the Holy Cross is a Catholic cemetery, and she could then go ahead and, you know, just, you know, give her documentation and try to release the church records, since the church records survived as well. Thanks so much, Melanie. I, I love it. I think it's really interesting. I might start peeking around in there myself and seeing what might be found relating to my family at that time. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you again soon. No, you're very welcome. Have a good one time once again for Ask Us Anything. And I'm very excited to have my good friend Nancy Desmond on the line with us from Chicago. And she, of course, is one of the co-founders of Memory Web, one of our sponsors. And I thought it was appropriate, Nancy, to get your thought on this question because it's from uh, Robert in Detroit. And Robert wrote about recently finding a box of photographs and negatives and slides and wants to know the best way to go about developing these and then ultimately digitizing them. And I think that's a really great question for somebody as well-versed in the photograph field as you guys are. Oh, that's a great question. And it's one that we actually get all the time, Scott. So really, our first recommendation is if you get photos or a box of family photos and slides and, and negatives, first of all, don't throw out the negatives or the slides. Those are actually gold. And I'll tell you why in a second. But the first thing is grab the photos and either scan them yourself or take them to a place that can scan them for you and scan them at as high a resolution as you possibly can. Just because that gives you the freedom to, if for some reason in the future, you want to take like a smaller photo and use it at a family reunion and be able to blow it up much larger, the higher the resolution, the more freedom you have to make a bigger print. And it also just crisper. Then the other thing is that actually having negatives or slides, you can actually get a much higher resolution when you scan those. So when you are able to scan the negatives and slides, and you would have to go to a professional company for that, you can get an output as high as 4,000 DPI compared to like 300 or 1,200 DPI when you're scanning a photo on a scanner. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference also if you want to, say, take a picture of an individual within a picture and blow that up as a separate image, right? Oh, that's a really good point. And people do that all the time. Yeah, I do it all the time, and I'd want to do that. But I haven't thought much about finding the negatives of the old photos. I mean, I've got plenty of those around the house because I've got all these prints, and it's like you just, okay, we get them all scanned, and they get all digitized. And then you think, wait a minute, if I'd done it with the negatives, maybe we could have done better. And it's also easier to clean up, right, if you're going to do something with, say, uh, Adobe Elements. Absolutely. So you could take things in and you'd be able to change um, you know, resolutions and colors and all kinds of things. There's really no limit to what you can do these days with online editing tools, especially with the Adobe suite of products. Yeah. So, and then the other question for you would be, what kind of format do you like them in? I mean, I've always thought JPEG is just fine, especially if you do it, say, at 1200 DPI. 
I'm told that, okay, if you open and close it, you know, 100, 200 times, you lose a little bit of resolution. But if you're going to use that to, say, make prints or put these images strictly in a book, how many times are you going to open it anyway, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that's a great question, too. And JPEG is a great format. If you are actually looking to preserve something to last for the long haul, a TIFF is the best file format because it has the least opportunity to lose bits, which are those little pieces of information that make the picture really crisp. And so if you scan it in a TIFF format, it tends to hold up a lot better than other formats like JPEGs. But JPEGs are great if you want to put something online and have it look really nice and not take up a lot of memory. Right. And they don't deteriorate, you know, very rapidly. Like I said, you'd have to go through that open and close it many, many times for you to start to ever notice any change in that quality. But TIFF has got to be the way to go. Uh, But it's it's a much larger format, right, in terms of space. It is. It is. It can definitely take a lot more space. So you can also selectively look at your photo collection and say, you know what, this group of 100 photos are the ones that are really the most important. The, like, the older, older ones tend to be far rarer, and those would be the ones that you would definitely want to have the higher resolution version of, but there are going to be fewer of them. Tell you what, Nancy, I sure love hearing your advice that we've gotten already on some of these questions. Here's one from Chloe in San Jose, California, and she says, what tips do you have for scanning a ton of stuff? That's a really good question because we'll often run into onesie, twosies, or even 10 or 12 that we can do at home or whatever. But boy, when you wind up with maybe hundreds of photographs, what would you recommend is the best way of going about managing that without getting overwhelmed or overpriced? Well, that's a great question, Chloe, and that's one we get all the time, too. We actually have had a recent thing where we inherited a whole bunch, actually a suitcase full of photos from a relative recently and had to get them digitized. So it's something you could do if you have a scanner at your house and do them one by one. That certainly gives you lots of control. But if you have hundreds and hundreds of photos and other things, maybe newspaper clippings, it can take quite some time. So a lot of times what we would recommend is that you can use an outside resource. And there's a bunch of different ones that you could use. If you are near a family history center from Family Search, you would be able to go there and many of those centers, and I believe that they have a listing online that will tell you which ones do and which ones don't, but many of those centers will have state-of-the-art scanning equipment that does really high resolution and also really quickly. So you can get hundreds and hundreds of photos scanned at a fraction of the time that you think it would take. Another option and is... Free. Yes, oh, and free. Oh, it's you know? free. Yes. Thank you, Scott. Yes, that's the most important part. So feed and it's free. And, and of course, everybody there is extremely helpful. And you can get some research done while you're there as well if you want. Another option is if you're fine with sending in your photos to one of the large volume scanning companies, there are companies like Scan My Photos out of California that yep. do a really great job and they have very reasonable pricing. And if you're one of the people who are a little bit hesitant to send things in, you can actually take things in a lot of times to your local camera shop. A lot of times they will have offerings to try to be very competitive to larger companies to scan photos, and they're also local, and you don't have to worry about shipping. So if that's a concern of yours, that's an option as well. I'll tell you what, I would rather do that than deal with a big box company, you know, where the teenagers are trying to run these things through, and they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And, (laughs) you know, I think the local guy, if you can develop a relationship with him or her, that could work out much better. Yeah, it just depends on what your preference is. Just get those things scanned, because you just never know 
what might happen that could destroy them or just make them not legible. So get them digitized so that they're protected and also they're shareable then. Well, and they're fixable too. Prints especially and even old uh, negatives and the like. They are all subject to heat and expansion or cold and contraction or back and forth, back and forth. And uh, then, then you don't have much to share or you have a lot more to fix. Good point, Scott. There's another tool that can be very helpful where you have really delicate photos where you may not want to take them out of an album. There is a tool called Shotbox. And using that, you're able to position your album or photos or anything that you are just worried about protecting. And you are able to place a camera, it can be your phone, it could be a regular camera, and you're able to take really great high resolution photos um, with great lighting and it makes a really clear print, but you do not have to take the photo out of the album, even albums that have plastic covers on front of the photos. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Nancy, because we haven't talked about Shotbox in a long, long time. So uh, it is a great tool and very useful. And thank you so much, Nancy Desmond from Memory Web. And uh, thank you for the question, Chloe, and for anyone who wishes to ask any kind of question about family history and preservation or research or whatever, you can email your questions to askusanything at extremegenes.com. Thanks so much, Nancy. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Scott. Hey, that's it for this week. David is back next week. We'll hear all about what happened at Roots Tech London from him at that time. Talk to you next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.